The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. I'm Will Appleton with an episode from the Lawfare Archive for October 22, 2022. A little over a month ago, protests erupted in Iran over the arrest and subsequent death of Masa Amini by the Iranian Guidance Patrol, or Religious Morality Police. Additional concerns were raised last week after an Iranian climber, Elnaz Rakabi, competed in South Korea without wearing her hijab, which ultimately prompted discussions among members of the national security community about how government actions and policies have impacts far outside their nation's borders. For today's archive episode, I picked an episode from 2021. In the episode, David Priest sat down with Nate Schenken, the Director of Research Strategy at Freedom House, and Isabel Linzer, a research analyst for technology and democracy at Freedom House, to discuss transnational repression, the variety of forms it can take, who repressive governments target and why, recommendations on how to buck the growing trend of transnational repression, and more. I'm David Priest, and this is the Lawfare Podcast, February 5th, 2021. Some countries don't just abuse their citizens within their own borders. Increasingly, they target individuals after they've gone abroad. A range of nefarious acts play a role here, and together they make up a phenomenon called transnational repression. Freedom House has just published a detailed report about it all called Out of Sight, Not Out of Reach. So I brought into the Virtual Jungle Studios its two authors, Freedom House Director of Research Strategy, Nate Schenken, and Research Analyst, Isabel Linzer. We discuss the variety of forms transnational repression can take, whom is targeted, and why. Examples from the governments of Russia and Saudi Arabia, from China and Rwanda, and even Equatorial Guinea, and recommendations to buck this growing trend. It's the Lawfare Podcast, February 5th, Transnational Repression, Out of Sight not out of reach. All right, scope this for us, Nate. Can you define transnational repression? Tell us who is being targeted in a general sense, because we'll get into those details later, and explain at a high level what your very extensive research that went into this report shows about the growing threat of transnational repression. Absolutely, and thanks for having us on. So when we say transnational repression, what we have in mind is when a government goes after an exile, 
or a diaspora member outside of their borders. This person might be a citizen of the country that they left. They might not be a citizen anymore, but they might be a national of that country originally. And when we say targeting, we tried to examine a whole slew of different tactics ranging from physical attacks, so assassinations, kidnappings, unlawful deportations, Mm -hmm. down to things like spyware and digital intimidation and smear campaigns. And we wanted to look at this because we felt that this was an issue that wasn't being discussed in a comprehensive and comparative way. Certainly different people who work on certain countries understood it. So if you work on Iran, you know Iran goes after its exiles. If you work on Saudi Arabia, obviously, you know about Jamal Khashoggi. But people don't always see these things in one big picture. And we think that a response to this requires that big picture. So the goal of the report was to put that big picture out there. And what we came away with from doing this research was we actually identified 31 different origin states, so states that are doing transnational repression to their exiles and diasporas, in 79 different host countries, the places where these people reside. And so that's a a scope and a scale of this problem that really hasn't been put in one place at one time yet. And so we hope that that's the big contribution. In terms of who's targeted, it's a range. It depends on the country. There are certain countries where really the only people who are being targeted are former maybe regime insiders, people that the government continues to be you know, very substantial political threats. And then there's other countries where it's the entire diaspora. It's everyone who's gone into exile. And then there's other countries where it might be a specific ethnic or political group. I hope that we can go into some of the details about that as we talk. Absolutely. Let me dig down on one thing with you first, which is this report catalogs over 600 direct cases of transnational repression, but you leave out some things that are that are harder to quantify that may be much more common. But still, over 600 direct cases in, I believe, what, six or seven years of the report? Right. Yes, that's right. Yeah. This isn't new, though. I mean, you can go back to England and France trying to attack each other's nationals uh, hundreds of years ago, uh, repeatedly to uh, Trotsky getting a, getting an ice axe in his head in <laughs> Mexico a uh, hundred years ago. So what's happening now? What, what are you seeing that it appears to be a growing trend and something that is different, at least in quantity and perhaps in quality than it was in years and in decades and even centuries past? Yeah, absolutely. And that's certainly a kind of perspective that we hope we try to provide in the report, not make it seem like this blossomed out of nowhere. But what we think is different now, what seems to be different now is the thing that's most different, I guess, about all of our lives. What's different about what we're doing right now, recording a podcast on our computers in however many different states and countries we might be in, is digital technology. When people go abroad, they now have access back to their family members, back to their political communities, back to their civic lives in the countries that they left in a way that they didn't before, um, or at least not on such a scale. So to take an example, there's an Iranian journalist who was kidnapped uh, last year from Iraq. He'd been living as a refugee in France, and he'd been working as a journalist. He ran a very popular telegram channel, and he was kidnapped on a trip to Iraq, and then he was imprisoned and unfortunately executed. This is someone who still had access back to the place that he left. And so that's a very important part of this dynamic between the origin country and the the exile or the diaspora. But the other part of that dynamic is that the origin country 
also has access to those people through those technologies. They know where you are from your public postings on social media or in other platforms. Mm -hmm. They can find you through surveillance in, in much more easily than they used to be able to. And this capability is available, of course, to countries with lots of resources, countries like China or Saudi Arabia that either build or buy you know, really advanced technology and spyware to do this stuff, but it's also available to poor countries and countries that don't have really built up intelligence services, because a lot of this stuff is in the public uh, sphere and a lot of it is available in very cheap ways. And so we think that's kind of the biggest shift probably that's happened in recent years. Isabel, let's break this big picture description of transnational repression down into its specific methods and tactics. Let's start with the most obvious, and we've already heard the name Jamal Khashoggi once already here. Let's start with direct attacks. What do you include in this category? So direct attacks is, of course, the most kind of obvious, um, usually the most newsworthy, unfortunately, type of attack that we see. So direct attacks is a very broad kind of category of assassinations, abductions, uh, physical attacks on individuals. But the unifying feature among all of them is that an operative from the origin state physically reaches the body of the targeted individual in the host country. And that happens without any intermediary. Um, So it is truly the most kind of direct physical uh, manifestation of this tactic that we've seen. Now that's that's the one that gets certainly the the headlines, but kind of the depth of this report is very impressive because it goes into the other methods that don't get as much attention, but in some cases overlap with direct attacks, enable the direct attacks, or otherwise limit the freedom of individuals in other countries. And one of those that's just fascinating is the category you describe of co-opting other countries where the attacking government, if you will, manipulates the laws and institutions of of other governments. Um, How do they do that? Walk us through that. So I I agree. Co-opting, I think, is incredibly interesting and important to think about um, for this problem because it does account for the vast majority of cases that we tracked in this report. Co-opting is when the origin state uses co-opts another state's institutions in order to act for them. We usually see this done through kind of judicial or law enforcement proceedings, um, frequently with a national security bent towards them, which we can talk about a bit more later. And so what, what happens is, say, an exile travels, uh, leaves, leaves their country, leaves Russia, for example, um, and tries to seek asylum in Germany. And what you see is that they might be detained because the Russian government has accused them of something that's and something like terrorism, for example. And when that happens, when they're detained or potentially deported, this is an instance where German law enforcement institutions are actually being used as a tool of the Russian state to reach an individual in another country. And so what happens is so many host countries are essentially complicit in transnational repression, whether they mean to or not. Certainly sometimes it's in their geopolitical interest to to cooperate, but other times it is 
really comes down to an issue with how migration regimes function in host countries. Um, and sometimes it's not only about the host country. Sometimes it's a bigger issue than that, like Interpol abuse, for example, which also falls right. into this category of co-option. Right. And it, and it overlaps with your third bucket that you talk about, which is mobility controls. What do you mean by mobility controls as it relates to this transnational repression trend? So mobility controls are, again, a really difficult one to quantify. To Nate's point, this is incredibly widespread. It includes passport cancellations or reporting passports as lost or stolen. And it can also include a denial of consular services. So if you need a document from your embassy, for example, similar to the case of Jamal Khashoggi, who needed a document from the Saudi embassy, uh, you have to engage with your host state in a way or your origin state in a way that you might not normally do so. And mobility controls is certainly one of these categories that we see as compounding with other tactics. For example, a passport cancellation might trap an individual in the host state. And while they're stuck there, unable to travel internationally, they might be rendered back to their origin state because Again, tying in all of these different pieces, they might have spyware deployed against them or have their location otherwise be known because of because of their public social media posts and the combination then of um, their digital footprint plus the mobility controls gives their origin state direct physical access to them. The final category you use is is a bit different, and you categorize it as threats from a distance. And that, that feels quite different than a direct personal attack on the body of a, a citizen living abroad. What do you mean by that? And how are these included in this same kind of repression discussion? So these are distinctly non-physical, at least in terms of how they impact the targeted individual. And it includes an incredibly broad and so large as to be unquantifiable, essentially, number of incidents, including things like coercion by proxy, which is where a family member or a loved one is imprisoned, attacked, or threatened or harassed by the origin state in order to pressure the targeted exile. It also includes things like smear campaigns and bringing it again back to digital communications, threats and harassment on social media, as well as spyware. I caveated that at the beginning because while it doesn't necessarily have a physical impact on the on the targeted individual, it might on their family member, for example, if their family member is imprisoned or harassed. And I think a challenge with this part of the problem is that it is, one, unquantifiable, so people have trouble grasping the scope of the problem. And two, it's a little bit harder to demonstrate the harm that comes out of it, because it really is such a personal challenging experience to have spyware deployed against you and and worry about who you may have compromised in that process simply because you talked to someone on the phone or to decide whether you should continue pursuing your activism when your uh, family members at home have been imprisoned. And I think we've seen so many cases where people are deterred from continuing their activism or speaking out at all because these kinds of threats are present. Thank you for that taxonomy there. It's it's important to understand the scope of this that you're looking at. You're looking at everything from assassination to to spyware that the target may 
even be unaware of. Like in most things, of course, it's much more memorable and sticky to talk about the details. So let's get right into some examples, some of the vibrant case studies. I was going to say some of the good stories, but there aren't good stories here. These are all quite quite miserable, quite horrifying stories. Nate, let's let's start with you on some of these case studies and regional snapshots in the report. Start us off with Russia. Give us some details about the trend you're seeing from the Russian government engaging in this repression in other countries around the world. Sure. And yes, I think as I said, you know, we have different target groups for the different origin countries and they act. And Russia is a very interesting one in this way, in in two distinct ways. The first is that Russia, of course, is very aggressive in going after principally former insiders, people who might be in a position to have a lot of knowledge about the Kremlin, a lot of knowledge about Vladimir Putin and about the regime, what they do and how they work, the really sensitive sore spots. So when we think about the poisoning of Alexander Litvinenko, the poisoning of Sergei Skripal. These are attacks on people who are in a position to work with uh, foreign intelligence agencies to share information that the Kremlin considered to be extremely dangerous to its continued rule. That's on the one hand, and it's very aggressive. It's very flagrant. It involves the use in cases like Litvinenko and Skripal of you know, a banned nerve agent or a rare radioactive isotope. <laughs> and so it's it's almost intending to send a very powerful message to the exile community about what Russia is willing to do if you cross certain lines. That's one big component of it. The other big component of it that's really visible when you look and you map out all the Russian cases is Chechens who are targeted. So Chechens, of course, are people from essentially the, uh, the, the province of Chechnya within the Russian Federation. This is in the North Caucasus. It's ruled by a man named Ramzan Kadyrov, who is uniquely brutal, um, famously and uniquely brutal for murder, personally torturing dissidents, etc. And Chechens are under extreme scrutiny when they go abroad and under extreme threat. So multiple times, just in the last year even, Chechens have been killed or almost killed in Europe by apparent agents of the Chechen Republic. And in that sense, there's this real dichotomy in the Russian case. You know, quote unquote, average Russians who go into exile, even those who might be critical of Putin or of the the Kremlin on social media or in public life, they aren't facing a, a transnational repression threat necessarily. Average Chechens who go abroad and who engage in those exact same kind of activities, maybe on YouTube, maybe on Facebook, they may be literally killed. And so it's it's a very, I think, illustrative case of how wide the gap can be sometimes in some of these things. And, and a really interesting part of the Russian case as well in that respect is how these things, you know, we, we divide them into two, but of course they do overlap and intersect. And there's a, quite a bit of evidence that's now emerging into the public sphere about how the Kremlin, of course, is aware of at a minimum and possibly helps the Chechen campaign against its distance abroad. One of the interesting things about the Russian case is that Russia is one of the few countries engaging in this range of activities you categorize as transnational repression, which has had some pushback. That is, some actions taken by the UK after the Litvinenko Polonium 210 and after the Skripals and things like the Magnitsky Act, whereas some other countries that we'll talk about later have had 
virtually no reaction whatsoever. But it seems like there hasn't been any deterrence of Russia. That is, the story that we learn from this is mild pushback limited to one or two countries or a few countries doesn't seem to change the calculus of the Russian government leaders about the value of these tactics, does it? I think that's right. I think when we, and I think you put it well, which is mild pushback. I mean, in the Litvinenko case, which of course kind of opened this discussion in the modern era around Russia, and that was back in 2006, that pushback came very slowly. It was very much slow rolled by the UK government. And it took a long time for them, even years, for them even to acknowledge that it was very clearly a Russian assassination. That, I think, obviously sent the wrong message. The response in the case of Skripal more recently was a bit quicker. The turnaround was a bit faster, but still has been fairly mild. And part of the problem is, of course, Russia's unique role in the international system as a nuclear power on the border with Europe, et cetera, et cetera. But really an unwillingness, I would say, in certain quarters to see all of these things as as of peace. And so if you look at things like the Nord Stream 2 pipeline or other Russian geopolitical interests that intersect in Europe, there's a real desire to, you know, portion those off and keep those separate from the question of you just murdered a person on a park bench in Berlin with a pistol. (laughs) And that's the loophole that Russia drives right through is that, yes, let's keep these two things separate. You know, let's have let's have a conversation about gas pipelines And then we can have a different conversation about the fact that we just had this man killed in the Mm -hmm. center of your capital. And those can't be separate conversations. This is the same regime trying to do the same thing. And certainly if we want to take transnational repression seriously, it means taking seriously how those things are related. Sure. Isabel, let's turn to how this is similar or different in Saudi Arabia. Obviously, some of the tactics of repression are, are similar but it does seem that the the target set is is different for understandable reasons and the saudis seem to have a what would you say a a sharper trend line of less of this activity decades ago and suddenly some very dramatic activity as opposed to the russian and previously the soviet state having engaged in things like this for quite some time walk us through the saudi case and what we can learn from the case study i'm glad you pointed to the question of timeline, right? Because that is very interesting when we're looking at Saudi Arabia, because it really is very closely tied to the rise of Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman, when we see the bulk of of cases in our research. And certainly there were some beforehand, but this appears to be a highly personalized campaign. And that's reflected in a couple of ways. One is certainly that the campaign targets former insiders above all else, especially members of the royal family, um, including kind of more extended members of the royal family. But still, these are people who are of a particular position, high enough profile that they could seem to pose a threat to the current regime. So there's that component. Uh, And of course, we know that uh, Prince Mohammed bin Salman was personally involved in the plans against Jamal Khashoggi. So there is kind of that very direct personal connection there. There's also a personal component in terms of how the state and and the actual government are related and how that relates to family structure. Because what we see in the Saudi case that is incredibly unique, actually, is that there's a particular gendered component. And 
This results in women featuring far more prominently in the country's transnational repression than we see in other cases. And we think this may be partly due to familial patterns of control, the guardianship system, for example, but it can also be attributed to the high profile of women's rights activists, which makes them targets in their own right. But in any case, there is the deployment of state resources in some cases to target women who may be trying to flee gender-based repression in Saudi Arabia. And all of a sudden you have this convergence of kind of personal connections with this state-driven transnational repression campaign. And that's unlike anything we've seen in other countries. What about the, I don't want to say the low end, but certainly the the less kinetic direct action end that you mentioned of mobility controls, and it's especially these threats from a distance like spyware. What are you seeing on the Saudi side on that front? The digital component is huge. There is the spyware component that you mentioned, which we believe, based on the evidence that has been shared, was part of how the Khashoggi plot came to be, that spyware deployed against one of his um, associates led to that targeting, at least in some aspect. But there's also this kind of wider campaign of repression that comes through when you look at the digital side. Saudi Arabia has a very well-known campaign on Twitter, essentially, where they target people who speak out using inauthentic accounts, right? These trolls, as we usually call them, targeting people online. And that has such a a different kind of result than these very specific kind of targeting, abducting a specific crown prince or another a prince from another country, right? Those are two completely right. different ends of the spectrum. There's this very high profile targeted physical component. And then there is the broad attempt to control the kind of conversation at a very basic level, the kind of conversation that's had among the diaspora. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hey, Lawfare listeners, Ben Wittes here. I want to tell you about the first time I got a report from the folks at Delete Me. It was shortly after I started using the service back in 2022, and they sent me their first privacy report. I have since gotten eight others, and it contained some shocking information. They had removed my data from 56 separate 
data brokers that this had included 133 separate records, including 621 individual pieces of personal information. Uh, the data broker with the most information about me was a company I'd never heard of called People by Name. And here's the thing. Since then, every couple of months, I've gotten another privacy report from Delete Me, and it always contains more information that they have removed from the data brokers about me. In the second report, they informed me they had removed my stuff from 41 data brokers and that the one with the most information about me was called HLEC. I have no idea what HLEC is. So the other day, I got my latest report and it includes 15 more data brokers with my personal information, 113 pieces of personally identifiable information, Big culprit this time is something called my life. Well, I want to tell you that they don't have my life anymore. And that is why I recommend Delete Me. As this little anecdote shows, there's a lot of my data out there. And these companies keep acquiring it and making it available to anybody who can pay. And I have uh, slept a little bit more easily ever since I found a solution to this problem. And I want to stress, as I do every time, that I started using this before Delete Me started advertising with Lawfare. Delete Me finds and removes any personal information you don't want online, and it makes sure it stays off. And that's the point of this little story, that you know they keep coming back. You can get it removed once, but they'll put it back, and then Delete Me comes and takes it off again. It's a subscription service that removes your personal information from the largest people search databases on the web and in the process helps prevent potential identity theft, doxing, and phishing scams. Delete Me sends you regular personalized privacy reports, just like the ones I've been describing, showing what info they found where, where they found it, and what they removed. And critically, as this story reflects, it isn't just a one-time service. It's always working for you, constantly monitoring and removing the personal information you don't want on the internet. It does all the hard work of wiping you and your family's personal information off the web. Data brokers hate Delete Me, which is why I like it. Your profile is no longer theirs to sell. So take control of your data and keep your private life private by signing up for Delete Me, now at a special discount for our listeners. Today, get 20% off your Delete Me plan when you go to joindeleteme.com lawfare20 and use promo code lawfare20 at checkout. The only way to get 20% off is to go to joindeleteme.com lawfare20 and enter code LAWFARE20 at checkout. That's joindeleteme.com slash LAWFARE20, code LAWFARE20. Great. Nate, back to you. Highlight what China is doing on this front. Absolutely. And I feel like we could do an entire podcast just on China's work in this area because right. China really conducts the most sophisticated global and comprehensive campaign of transnational repression in the world. And there's a number of reasons why this is the case. The, the top reason has to do with the targets. I've talked about how certain countries target only certain communities. China really targets 
entire ethnic and religious groups. So this includes Uyghurs, other Turkic Muslims in some cases, Tibetans, Falun Gong practitioners, more recently Hong Kongers. It also targets, though, in addition to those ethnic and, and political groups and religious groups, targets former insiders in this huge anti-corruption drive that mm -hmm. China has called Fox Hunt. And that targets what may be thousands of former officials living abroad. It's also more sophisticated in that China's campaign is really built from the bottom up around this much bigger influence infrastructure that encompasses state-sponsored cultural associations, diaspora groups, in some cases, cooperation with organized crime, and which really means that the, the, the huge population of Chinese citizens around the world and, and Chinese nationals around the world are in constant contact with basically CCP-sponsored and organized institutions. And that gives them a level of insight, opportunity, and control that they can exercise and do exercise against all of these different groups. So really, when we talk about China, we talk about the most sophisticated, most global, and most high-capacity state in transnational repression. Now, in China's case, correct me if I'm wrong, but it seems like you see substantial activity in almost every one of the buckets that Isabel talked about before, from direct attacks through manipulating other countries' laws down through these threats from a distance. Not all countries do, but China has done so and has not necessarily been shy about it. Do you see some role for China, maybe even for Russia, which we talked about earlier, in serving as almost a role model for developing countries to expand their own transnational repression portfolios? It certainly has the potential to act as a role model or to act as a reshaper of what the norms are, which is a really big question. And China is probably the, the, the only country or certainly the top country that's capable of doing this kind of really powerful order making around these issues. So yes, China uses all of the tactics that we studied. Every tactic, China is the only country in, in the isolated tactics where we identified them using every single one, all the way up from you know imprisoning family members to spyware, all the way up to assassinations. They are also, you know, because of their enormous geopolitical weight and bilateral and multilateral power, able to push to reshape institutions. I don't want to say that that always succeeds. There's been a lot of pushback against, for instance, extradition treaties recently with China. There's been a lot of pushback at Interpol around China's influence. Listeners may recall that a couple of years ago, the uh, the head of Interpol was a Chinese official who was actually disappeared <laughs> when he went back to China for a visit. Yeah. He's disappeared in one of the corruption yeah. crackdowns and, and later reappeared in prison. And that certainly was a huge blow to China's credibility, right? For heading an organization that nominally is supposed to be committed to rule of law, is that you know this official, depending on how you look at it, he was either kidnapped when he returned home, or he was so corrupt that he shouldn't have been in that official position anyway. So it's not that it's always smooth sailing, but China really has the capacity and the intention to try to make it so that there is this kind of cooperation all around the world against so-called you know extremists, separatists, or terrorists. To give a specific example of that. In the region of, of China, there's the Shang, in the Shanghai Cooperation Organization, which extends to China's west, so into Central Asia, includes Russia, most of the Central Asian states. The, the SCO 
acts as a regional cooperation organization that includes an actual blacklist of people accused of terrorism, extremism, and separatism, hmm. which is how you know China defines these three evils, as they call it. And so you have kind of an you have a, a literal institutionalization of these functions of sharing information between the, the member states about who is a threat. Right? Who do we consider to be out of bounds? And then you have cooperation to return and render people between those different countries on that basis. And so there's this real, you know, institution creating and norm setting ability that China has that I would say no other country in the study has. Yeah. You mentioned Interpol in there. And let's take one little digression before I get back to Isabel on on Interpol. Can you describe how Interpol, which which certainly came about as an international means of cooperation on law enforcement issues with good intentions and for good purposes, and still accomplishes some of those good purposes, but how easily it has become manipulated, in particular by Russia within the last few years. Sure. Yes. Interpol is a really important topic and one that's often misunderstood. Interpol's role as you said, is to help police forces in all the different countries of the world share information with each other. So notify each other that a person is sought. Uh, maybe that person is a missing child. Maybe that person's a drug trafficker. Maybe that person's a terrorist. And that's the purpose. Um, and for a long time, this was a pretty sleepy kind of territory, right? There weren't a lot of notices. It was used, but not heavily. What happened is that in the 2000s, in line with this technology conversation, it became much, much easier to notify <laughs> these member states that you were seeking someone. Basically, you went from, oh, we've got to fill out a form and telegram it to someone, to we can batch upload a spreadsheet. And all of a sudden, you could put in thousands of names, basically with one click. And Interpol itself didn't have the institutional capacity and didn't have the basis to vet all of those notices. And so you wound up with a situation where notices are being disseminated to the member states for people to be detained without any vetting or with very minimal vetting, essentially. Um, and this has resulted in very flagrant abuses all over the world. As you said, Russia has been a remarkable abuser. One of the things we saw in this report is that you know, Interpol has red notices. Only some of those are made public because many of them are not revealed. But of the public notices, Russia accounts for 38% of them globally. Wow. <laughs> uh, so, wow. So we're getting up to, you know, four tenths or whatever, two fifths. It's, uh, it, it, it's, it's really ripe for abuse. There have been efforts. There's been a lot of civil society effort for the last decade to try to improve this because it's such a visible problem. And I, I will say there's been certain improvements, but at bottom, Interpol kind of gets to the issue behind a lot of this transnational oppression problem, which is how do you have a cooperative relationship with a country that doesn't have rule of law? So if Russia tells you this person is a terrorist, how do you know that if it's based on a Russian prosecutorial investigation, knowing what we know about Russia's prosecution services? You take a look at Navalny right now being sent to two and a half years in prison uh, on nonsense charges. How do we know that the case that, that's used to back that Interpol notice is any better than the one that's being used to imprison Navalny? And the fact is, we don't. Uh, so it's very challenging for cooperation, keeping in mind that, yes, in some form of international cooperation is probably necessary, even with authoritarian countries. Thank you. Let's round this out with a regional view. Isabel, you, you find interestingly that Latin American governments overall are relatively better on this transnational repression issue than many other regions, but that quite a few governments in sub-Saharan Africa 
are really diving in there. What stands out to you from the countries in sub-Saharan Africa that pushed you to highlight this as an area of particular concern from multiple governments? That's right. It is quite actually a common problem in the region. And the states that we found engaging in transnational repression, uh, physical forms at least, are Rwanda, Burundi, Equatorial Guinea, Ethiopia, Sudan, and South Sudan. And I should say that Eritrea and Djibouti have also engaged in certain types of transnational repression, though not necessarily within the time period or meeting the other criteria of this report. But I think I have to start with Rwanda when we're talking about transnational repression in sub-Saharan Africa. Um, We dedicated an entire case study in our report to Rwanda because it is among the most prolific offenders of transnational repression in the world. And yet people who don't study the country or don't study the region always seem very surprised to hear that. And that I think is kind of a microcosm of some of the issue that we're we're trying to raise with transnational repression is that it is a very widespread problem and doesn't receive proper recognition, um, either positively or negatively. And Rwanda, it's really a case of what happens when transnational repression goes undeterred. So President Paul Kagame came to power in the 1990s, and his government has been assassinating and otherwise targeting Rwandans abroad since then. So that's been over two decades of this campaign. And they have used all of the tactics except for unexplained disappearance and unlawful deportation, though that's not to say they haven't tried. And it really is remarkable, the reach of this campaign. It targets high-profile opposition figures, uh, former insiders from inside Kagame's government, as well as essentially anybody who speaks out. So it has such a broad reach that essentially all Rwandans abroad are at risk of transnational repression. And that is certainly not the case for all countries, right? Like Nate was saying earlier with Russia, it's a much more targeted campaign that's carried out by the Kremlin. Beyond Rwanda, Burundi, neighboring country, also carries out a very aggressive and quite recent campaign. There is kind of political upheaval that happened in 2015 and 2016 when the president decided to run for an unconstitutional third term. And that led to a mass exodus of refugees, some of whom, especially opposition members, have been targeted since then. I think strikingly a way to kind of conceptualize exactly how broad of a reach that has. The Canadian Refugee Board um, released a report a while ago that identified the Mbanarakure, which is a government-controlled youth militia from Burundi, operating in Rwanda, Tanzania, the Democratic Republic of the Congo, Uganda, Kenya, Sudan, and South Sudan. So there you see the government's reach extending into refugee camps and communities in a half dozen neighboring countries. Um, And beyond that, there are some countries that folks might expect to see because they are often on lists of bad offenders and authoritarian governments like Sudan. Uh, And there are others that, to use my favorite surprising example, uh, are like Equatorial Guinea. Again, relatively unknown small countries to the average observer, yet who have targeted 
people uh, on multiple continents. I mean, Equatorial Guinea, many opposition members and uh, members of the diaspora believe the government is responsible for an armed attack on an opposition leader residing in the UK. It really is astounding once you take a closer look just to see how many countries are engaging in this type of behavior and the impact that it does have on even these very small diaspora communities around the world. And that raises a really interesting point, doesn't it? That Russia, China, even Saudi Arabia, because more eyes in the world are on them paying attention to their behavior, even if they do not react to some of these things, at least these things are known. These things are written about. These things have documentaries made about them. When it's Equatorial Guinea, fewer people in the the targeted countries they care because it's happening on their territory, but the inherent interest about a citizen from Equatorial Guinea being attacked in this way is sadly less. Do you, do you see that trend, especially as it regards uh, sub-Saharan African dynamics, that these countries get even less pushback than a Russia or a China and therefore feel that they have free reign to continue in these activities? I think that's very much the case. Uh, To go back to Rwanda, because that is a relatively known one within the continent, still, President Paul Kagame is a darling of the development community. And that's, I think, speaks to the type of relationship and incentives that pervade the relationships that democratic governments and host country governments have with these different origin states. So to compare Russia and Rwanda, And take the United States as an example. The United States views these two countries as through very different lenses. Um, The U.S. government has typically expressed more of a responsibility following its failures around the genocide in the 90s and is invested in stability in the country, whereas Russia is certainly a boogeyman, to put it one way, and frequently talked about through a national security lens. And so the incentives for addressing these problems or ignoring them are very, very different for these countries. And again, that's taking Rwanda, which among all of these sub-Saharan African countries is one of the best known offenders. And yet still we haven't seen significant pushback, especially Mm -hmm. from the US or um, Mm -hmm. many other countries in Europe. Some here and there, but uh, we haven't seen any kind of consistent response. Right. Nate, this report has come out timed in the first few weeks of a new administration, and I suspect that's not by accident because you have some recommendations for ways to constrain the ability of countries to commit these acts of transnational repression and to increase accountability for the perpetrators. Let's focus on the incoming administration. What can the Biden administration do both in terms of the lower hanging fruit that can be done quickly and in terms of thing that might take some time. But what can be done from an executive branch point of view? Yeah, definitely. We were thinking as we were working on this, whether it was a new administration or the same administration, it's very important to give people something concrete here rather than just all the scary stories that are in the report. So for the U.S. and for the executive branch in particular, we do think there's opportunities to act. And I would divide it into two big categories um, that we've used. One is accountability and the other is resilience. When we say accountability, we mean 
using the powers of the presidency of the executive branch to, in particular, impose targeted sanctions. So, you know, the, the, the U.S.'s capacity to impose targeted sanctions on individual perpetrators for serious human rights violations has really improved especially since the Global Magnitsky Act was passed. And so this is a perfect example of something where that authority exists. Um, I believe it's being reauthorized, actually, right as we speak, you know, this week, potentially. And it, it, it is a good tool for doing that, for saying this particular official, this particular person who we know is responsible for this assassination or rendition, kidnapping, that person is going to be sanctioned by the U.S. government. That can be very powerful. We think that needs to be applied effectively. It needs to be applied consistently. You know, part of the challenge with what we in the field call GLOMAG for Global Magnitsky, part of the GLOMAG challenge has been its sometimes politicization as a tool. And so applying it, you know, consistently, so including sometimes to allies, who might engage in these things, is an important way to make it clear what we're drawing a line around and having real credibility about what the, that the violations will not be accepted no matter who they do them, if it's Saudi Arabia or Turkey or if it's Russia or Iran. Then in the second area in resilience, in terms of executive branch, there's a lot of work that can be done to rebuild refugee resettlement in the U.S. And, and let me explain why this is important for resilience for the U.S. The first reason is simply that you know, people are safer in democracies. You're going to raise the level of protection that people have. Certainly, yes, people can still be targeted inside of democracies. It can still happen. But they are safer in the U.S. or in another strong democracy than they are in Thailand or Turkey or in another third country where they might have fled. So that's the first. The second is the leadership component. If we want other countries to take this seriously, if we want to say to other countries, we need to protect people who are fleeing persecution, we have to take people. (laughs) we have to be willing to take some of the burden on ourselves. And that's obviously been a big issue in the previous administration. I think the new administration is making some of the right gestures, certainly, and has has some of the right commitments. So we're, you know, cautiously optimistic that we can rebuild, you know, the, the longstanding American and bipartisan American affirmative commitment to refugee resettlement. And those are kind of two basic steps. We can also talk about a lot more stuff that we can do long term. Give us one or two of those, because one sure. of the benefits of being at the beginning of a new administration is they have a timeline, right? They, they have an ability to look ahead and say, we don't have to try to push something in the next month because that's all the time we've got. They know they've got a solid four years to try to institute some of these things that have a longer runway. Yeah, definitely. And in those, in that respect, some of the things that we would highlight are dealing with commercial spyware. So dealing with the problem that countries right now can buy on a pretty unregulated market, very intrusive, very powerful tools. And a lot of those tools are being sold by companies in Europe, Israel, the United States, or companies with those registrations. And that's, that's leverage. Uh, you know, a U.S. export designation or export restriction for a license can be an important way to curtail the spread of surveillance software. And that one's very important because we see underneath a lot of the more flagrant things, spyware. A second one, and this would go back into the resilience area, is strengthening the capacity of our law enforcement and immigration institutions to recognize transnational repression when it's happening mm-hmm. um, or when someone's under threat of it. And how to deal with it, how to respond. I mean, you guys were talking about Sub-Saharan Africa or Equatorial Guinea. What happens when an Equatorial Ghanaian is living in Colorado <laughs> and goes to, you know, say even an FBI field office and says, I'm under threat by, from my government, you know, 
what do they do? Odds are they say, I don't know where you're from. I don't know what this means. You know, I don't, and, and perhaps they don't take it as seriously as they should. And we do think there's a lot there that can be done to help certainly federal law enforcement and then at another level, local law enforcement to understand the threats that people in their communities might be facing and to take them seriously and to, to evolve a strategy that prevents people from being targeted more proactively. So we're not responding after the fact. Right on, right on. Now, a lot of these things that you've mentioned uh, and some other possibilities require money and they require congressional support. So Isabel, let's close out with talking about what's in the hands of Capitol Hill. And if you can get members from both sides of the aisle to agree on the importance of pushing back against some of these transnational repression tactics, what are the things Congress can focus on to get that ball rolling? Well, on the accountability side, Nate mentioned GLOMAG already and the uh, um, reauthorization of that, which is incredibly important because it's set to sunset in I think next year at this point. So it's crucial that it's reauthorized. And beyond that, Congress needs to make sure there is sufficient funding in order to be able to actually enforce the sanctions that may be passed through the Global Magnitsky Act. Also on the accountability side is restricting security assistance to governments engaging in transnational repression. And I think we saw actually a very clear missed opportunity when the U.S. government could have acted on this in the Saudi case, when President Trump vetoed a bill that would have blocked weapon sales to Saudi Arabia. Mm -hmm. Congress did their step on towards accountability there, and it wasn't matched at the executive level. But that's the kind of thing that we want to see, that kind of security assistance being tied to whether governments are engaging in these types of human rights violations. And shifting to the resilience side of things, Updating the transparency laws uh, regarding individuals who are acting on behalf of foreign governments is really important and potentially even expanding them. I think something that's very interesting that we found in our work is that a number of European governments have laws against what is called refugee espionage. And so that's spying against refugees. And I, I think it was Sweden, actually, that expelled a Rwandan diplomat for refugee espionage. And that's an incredibly important way to protect rights within democracies and potentially very interesting for, for Congress to look into further. And then finally, there's steps that Congress can take on combating Interpol abuse. In particular, there's a bill called the Transnational Repression Accountability and Prevention Act, or the TRAP Act, that includes reforms to the Interpol system, including requirements for reporting on abuse, and also limiting the role that Interpol notifications play in the U.S. legal system. And I think that's interesting because in addition to kind of addressing some of the issues that exist in the system writ large, it also addresses how they impact the U.S.'s existing system. We didn't talk too much about this, but migration systems really are a huge way that governments can co-opt other host states, right? And so this is a place where the U.S. can build resilience and make sure that U.S. law enforcement institutions aren't being used to do another country's bidding. That is a great point. And I, I will also highlight that Freedom House calls for expanded efforts in law enforcement training and in civil society awareness of and action against transnational repression. But I'll point listeners to the report, which is featured prominently at freedomhouse.org. Nate, Isabel, thanks for joining us on the Lawfare Podcast. 
Thanks so much for having us. Thanks so much. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. Please do share the podcast with your friends and people who aren't your friends to let them know about these topics we cover. And don't forget to check out Lawfare merch at thelawfarestore.com. This episode is edited and produced by Jen Pacha Howell. Zachary Frank again was our audio engineer. Sophia Yan again performed our music. As always, thanks for listening.